I'm Brittany Bathia, your host of The Heart of the Matter, where we highlight best practices and innovation in cardiovascular disease prevention and health promotion, aiming to invigorate the field and help set direction for the future. For those listening who don't know, cardiovascular disease is the nation's leading cause of death among both men and women, and the leading cause of health disparities. Heart disease, stroke, and other cardiovascular diseases also account for one in every three deaths in the United States. The month of February is always a special month for the podcast and NACDD. It's American Heart Month, a time when all people, especially women, are encouraged to focus on their cardiovascular health. Today, I'm excited to introduce our special guest, Robin Taylor, Vice President of NACDD's Center for Justice and Public Health who will highlight NACDD's social justice framework and how it will be applied to the work in cardiovascular disease prevention and health promotion. Robin leads NACDD's organizational initiatives and collaborations to implement meaningful and impactful change for anti-racism and health equity, including initiatives linked to gender, disability, poverty, education, and other social determinants of health. Prior to this role, she served as the Senior Director of Health Equity at NACDD and was a health equity consultant as well. Her work included a project to increase enrollment of minority men in the National Diabetes Prevention Program. Overall, Taylor's commitment to public service also includes serving as the Assistant Director of Health Equity for the state of Ohio. Robin, welcome and thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. First, we'd love to hear a bit more about what inspired your public health career and the work that you're doing now with the social justice framework. Yes, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, on the east side of Cleveland. And in my childhood, I observed a lot of different inequities and always wondered why things were the way they were. I wondered why our city was very segregated. I wondered why different health outcomes were prevalent in my family, depending upon where different family members live. So I always had an interest in the what-ifs and why are specific things happening health-wise within my community and within my family. And as a result of that curiosity, that led me to formal studies in education and higher education around policy, political science was my original degree that I declared at The Ohio State University. But I found myself, no matter what job I had growing up, it was always in service to community even starting out as a child working in my family's food bank every two weeks, every other Saturday was a day to which we gave out food in the community. And I remember this as early as the days when the federal government gave out block cheese. I remember giving out block cheese to individuals within our community as a way to support families. That is all public health, basically. I also got to this point through my activity and experience as, if, believe it or not, back in the day, I was a candy striper. That's what I was in the university hospital system in Cleveland, Ohio. That is where I began to, as a teenager, make connections between health and the places where people learn, live, work, and play. And so as I continued throughout my trajectory in life, I just began to be more curious about the cause and effect and why different communities have different outcomes as it relates to poverty, as it relates to health outcomes, um, and as it relates to opportunity. 
Well, thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into what you were exposed to as a child and what really inspired your work in the field of public health. Can you tell us a little bit more about the origin of the NACDD social justice framework? What is it and, and how did this work come to be? The social justice framework has been an evolution, so to speak. NACDD has always had a commitment to health equity. That commitment started with the original health equity interest group in the early days of NACDD that evolved to becoming the health equity council that you see today. But the health equity council has always been committed to advancing strategies that promote health equity and equitable programs within community. We always have had these conversations, whether it be webinars, learning opportunities, resources that were developed. But there's always been this understanding that even if a person has high quality access to health care, if they don't have access to the things they need in their everyday life within their community, there still is a problem. And we all understood and talked quite often as a council about these things. You know, we understood that, you know, once ACA passed, you know, all of us were talking and knew that even though we were providing a way for those that do not have health insurance to have health insurance, but we knew that the disparities were going to persist. And it was much more than just having access to high quality, culturally relevant providers, but it's about what happens in my community after I leave my doctor, after I leave my healthcare provider. Do I have access to the things I need to be healthy? And so let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, just say, for example, hypothetically, I were to visit my healthcare provider and he says, hey, Robin, you are at risk. You're at risk for high blood pressure, for cardiovascular disease. There's a history in your family and you're overweight and your blood pressure is consistently high. I want you to go home and exercise two to three times a week. I want you to also eat lean, fresh fruits and lean meats. And I want to see you back here in a couple of months. But what if when I go back to my community, I live in a food desert. I don't feel safe to exercise in my community. I don't have the resources to pay for a gym membership because I am Robin Peter to pay Paul. So, you know, we knew that even though access to healthcare was made possible or more readily available for more people, we knew that there were still some systemic and structural issues that need to be addressed. And hence, here we are at this social justice framework. But I tell you, the framework was developed in partnership between the Center for Advancing Healthy Communities and the Center for Justice and Public Health. And as a result of our Thought Leader Roundtable that happened in 2022, it brought us to the table to say, look, let's take a look at the recommendations from the Thought Leader Roundtable. And one of those recommendations was to create a, a tool or a resource for chronic disease directors to really wrap their head around how they can use their position, their information to convene and to disseminate information so that we can create communities of high opportunity for everyone and break down those barriers to access to the things that people need to be healthy. This is how we developed or got to the place to say, hey, we need to develop a framework that can help plant the seeds of social justice and sustain this work over time. We had this thought leader roundtable in Washington, D.C., 
And the Thought Leader Roundtable consisted of not only chronic disease directors, but we also had experts in the field, researchers from Emory University, the Kresge Foundation, uh, Healthy Savannah. There were several people that joined us in this conversation. Not only were there chronic disease directors and others, but there was also representation from the CDC, their Office of Minority Health, Public Health Law Network also joined us as well. So there was a really good representation reflected in the conversation in the Thought Leader Roundtable. And that is something that we're really excited about is that not only were we able to gain recommendations from our public health practitioners, we were able to bring partners together to get their perspectives and their expertise as to how to bring us together more to have conversations around closing the racial wealth gap and other issues that are presenting as barriers to optimal health for racial and ethnic minorities, those living below poverty in rural communities, and so on and so forth. That's really phenomenal to be able to bring together those groups of stakeholders, Robin. I know that there's been these five pillars to the social justice framework. Can you walk us through what those pillars are and how they relate to the work that you feel chronic disease directors specifically are a prime to implement? Yeah. So, you know, as a result of Thought Leader Roundtable, there were some key takeaways or recommendations, and those four recommendations informed the work of the social justice framework. So let me give you an example of what those recommendations were. Number one, understand the impact of racism and systemic oppression on the racial wealth gap. Two, discuss the implications of the racial wealth gap on population health. Three, discuss public health's role in addressing societal challenges. Four, develop draft recommendations for addressing systemic racism through a social justice framework and public health practice. And as a result of that, we went back to the drawing board and had conversations, did our research, and developed the social justice framework that consists of five pillars. And those pillars are ethical and social responsibility, personal and communal intentionality, centering intersectionality, prioritizing multi- and interdisciplinary partnerships, and reflexivity and data processes. So we're asking people who work in public health to, as an ethical and social responsibility, we're asking you to understand the historical challenges of racial and ethnic minorities and other groups that are being left behind or that are plagued by disparities in chronic disease outcomes. What has happened in those communities? What is the history? That is our responsibility to understand that history when we're trying to prescribe solutions for communities. How can you walk in and prescribe a solution when you have no knowledge about the history or the challenges that various communities have faced? It's impossible. So we encourage our public health practitioners to have a sense of ethical and social responsibility, to be intentional about the work that they're doing. You know, not to just say, this is my nine to five, this is what I'm doing, but being intentional with expecting positive outcomes and making sure that as we understand the histories of various communities, of various groups, that we're intentional in how we're developing those strategies. Furthermore, when we mention centering intersectionality, we must, as public health experts and practitioners, 
understand the various challenges and barriers that individuals are faced with. It's not just one level playing, but there's a mixture of oppression that individuals are faced with on a day-to-day basis. And so we're asking that we develop programs and opportunities to engage with community that takes into consideration the several layers of oppression that an individual or a group may be faced with. It's not so simple to say it's just this one thing that I am, um, that we are trying to address. So what I mean by that, let, let me give you an example. Let's say I'm a woman that is um, faced with needing to have a breast exam, but I have five children. I work paycheck to paycheck. I don't have transportation, but I know I need a, a mammogram. So if I am a public health practitioner that has worked within a local or state health department to develop a mammogram truck or a, a mammogram intervention for community, if I'm taking into account the intersectionality of the populations we serve, I'm going to make sure that the service is either free or on a sliding fee scale, that the location of the mammogram service is feasible for those who do not have cars, whether that means making sure the site is accessible through public transportation. I'm also going to make sure there are child care services available so that that is not a barrier for participation and completing a successful mammogram. It's not enough just to make the mammogram service available. It's to make sure that we're making the service available, but we're also making sure that we're striking down every barrier that could present itself for women to participate in having their mammogram done. So we're asking public health to center intersectionality and make sure we're looking at the various forms of oppression that one specific group may face and be able to mitigate those challenges when developing um, public health intervention. We're also asking folks to prioritize multi-interdisciplinary partnerships, and that means bringing non-traditional partners to the table, as well as centering the community voice, because community knows what the challenges are, they know what they need, and they can enrich our services that we develop for our community just by taking into account their personal and lived experiences. We're also talking about you know, those non-traditional partners like churches and commerce and sororities, fraternities, other types of civic engagement organizations, those people that we have traditionally left out, bring them to the table because I believe they can enrich the products that we deliver. And then with reflexivity and data processes, we're just asking that as we package data and share and disseminate data that is done in an ethical way and is done in a way that tells the whole story and does not allow for the perception of a particular group to be demeaning right? That there's something wrong with that group. And maybe that's why they're carrying the the load or the burden of cardiovascular disease. No, let's tell the whole story so that people can understand what is happening and develop interventions that are effective based on telling the whole story when we are sharing data as public health professionals. Thank you, Robin, for really illustrating the connection between social justice and public health and why a framework like this would be needed and is so important for the field, not only in public health broadly, but applying it specifically to heart disease prevention. What's your vision for the framework? Pie in the sky, what would you want to see from states who applied this framework in health departments across the country? 
Well, my vision is that this is just the first iteration, right? This is the first product with a social justice lens. My vision is that we are going to work towards developing additional tools to help our members and other public health practitioners to apply a social justice framework to their work or to their practice. So this is just the beginning of the conversation. I see us sharing additional resources with our members around social justice, but not only that, there is work that's happening internal to NACDD with regards to the social justice framework. So, for example, one of the things that I have initiated within the association is the NACDD social justice integration team. And so we're making sure that not only are we sharing this resource with our members and others, but that we're also operationalizing the five pillars within our day-to-day practice at NACDD. We're also making sure that as a team, we are developing additional learning opportunities for our members and engagement opportunities to have conversations around the five pillars, as well as sharing additional information as to how others are in the process of operationalizing any of the five pillars. So I am looking forward to continuing this conversation, and I'm hoping that as more of our members become aware of and begin to use this social justice framework, that we're going to see different people at the table, that we're going to see some not only personal intentionality around advancing social justice, but our communal efforts where we're coming together to advance not only health equity and social justice, but making sure that as a whole, that public health remembers our foundation of who we are. You know, I think about Jon Snow quite a lot, about his story and the Broad Street Pump. You know, yes, he did advocate for the closure of the pump, which he was successful in doing that. He was our first a great epidemiologist, you know. But the thing is that what a lot of people don't talk about is after he was able to successfully close the pump, the Broad Street pump, he then expanded his public health interest. He had a, a thing about nuisance industries in London, those construction or, or factories that were putting pollutants in the air. You know, he began to share with the decision makers why it is that we need to have legislation as it relates to the factories and industries in London to make sure that we keep our communities safe. And so I want to bring us as public health practitioners back to that thought that, yes, we have the information, we have the data, we understand various concepts of public health, but we should be advocating and sharing information and making sure that our legislators, our decision makers, those who make decisions as, as, as it relates to resource allocation, money, all those types of things, understand what happens within our communities, specifically communities of low opportunity, and how um, having a lack of the things that are needed to be healthy actually costs our nation more in the long run. When you begin to think about the trillions of dollars we spend each year in healthcare costs alone in our nation, it's, it's ridiculous because I think, you know, we're spending all this money. Let's get to the root of the issues so that we can take some of that money and funnel it towards other programs and other needs within our nation. But we're one of the developed countries that spends the most on health care but has the worst health outcomes. So there's a disconnect there. And I think there needs to be more conversations about that. And you talked a little bit earlier about bridging the gap with our public health workforce. 
but also our chronic disease directors are really bringing themselves to a place of understanding about the connection between social justice and public health. What do you think are the unique strengths that our states have that puts them in the position to be able to address risk factors for heart disease that are rooted in social justice? Oh my gosh, yes. I really believe that chronic disease directors, again, can be conveners and disseminators of information. And I really think that chronic disease directors are uniquely positioned, not only within the public health department, but within community, because I believe chronic disease directors have the opportunity to meet different stakeholders and bring those stakeholders together to say, hey, look, in our state or in our nation, this is what's happening as it relates to cardiovascular disease. And as a result of this, these are some things that we need to consider. We need to make sure that we're advocating for fresh fruits and vegetables and lean meats at reasonable prices. We need to advocate for making sure that people have jobs and that we are advocating for making sure people have services to behavioral health and supports that they need. We are positioned to be the dissemination of data, information, facts that can help our decision makers to make decisions that lead to, again, what I consider communities of high opportunity for everyone. And what is a community of high opportunity? A community of high opportunity consists of a community that has jobs, healthy housing, infrastructures, great educational systems, right? These types of things, transportation systems that are effective and reasonably priced and get people to jobs and other places that they need to get to, that these different things are addressed right? That's a community of high opportunity. And those communities of high opportunity leads to systems of connectedness. It leads to giving power back to community. These are the things that are the root causes. We need to make sure that we're addressing not only what's happening immediately in our face and that the, the, the data is showing, but we need to address the root causes of inequities, getting to the root so that we can have better outcomes as a nation. And Robin, what are your thoughts about the capacity building opportunities that position states to be able to implement the social justice framework well? Well, one of the things that we are working on at NACDD are learning opportunities focusing on the social justice framework. Currently, we have our two-day Foundations of Health Equity training that we offer to states, but specific to the social justice framework, we're looking forward to providing some learning opportunities for our members around the framework and how best to operationalize the five pillars of our social justice framework. Well, for those who don't know, the social justice framework is available on the NACDD website and will be accessible from the links in the podcast notes. I do want to take a moment just to thank you, Robin, for your time today and sharing not only your experiences, but your background and really helping us invigorate as we continue the work to prevent cardiovascular disease. To our listeners, thank you for joining. With gratitude to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for funding this effort, this podcast episode is brought to you by the National Association for Chronic Disease Directors, or NACDD. The National Association for Chronic Disease Directors and its more than 7,000 members seek to strengthen state-based leadership and expertise for chronic disease prevention and control. Established in 1988 in partnership with the CDC, NACDD is the only membership association of its kind to serve and represent every chronic disease division in all states and U.S. territories. For more information, visit chronicdisease.org.